0: a dead man's town another episode of stick to wrestling is about to hit the ground hello everyone my name is john mcadam this is stick to wrestling there are plenty of good podcasts out there but are they wicked good let me ask this guy No! no
1: no 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 no
0: i'll take his expert opinion on that this is stick to wrestling give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast Follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam, and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. And with that, I want to bring on my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin.
2: And since I'm here, I'm here to talk about the Facebook page. So if you haven't been to the Facebook page yet or haven't joined, why not? 810 or something like that of your compatriots have, and uh, we all have a pleasant good time usually, and you find out stuff like this. Did Bob Backlund retain the title 40 years ago? What does a crotch and body hold, and why did Vern Garnier use it, and uh, why is the Ohio Express playing a concert with Jerry Lawler?
0: The Ohio Express? Oh, okay. The Ohio yeah. Express. I said, wait, the Ohio Players and Jerry no, Lawler. Ohio but- Express. Devil's music. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we had such a good time last week with John Muse that we wanted to bring him on for a second hour of stick to wrestling. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different than the last show, but John Muse, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me again.
1: Hey, no problem.
0: All right. So we have all recently watched the very first clash of the champions, March 29th, I believe, 1988. Uh, Let's talk about the promotion coming into the show. Vince McMahon successfully killed Starcade 87 by putting a free show up against, or putting his own pay-per-view up against Starcade and telling the pay-per-view world that, hey, you can't carry both shows. And everyone, of course, based on the success of WrestleMania 3, went with the WWF product, and boom, down goes Starcade. Then WCW runs another pay-per-view. January of 1988, and the Royal Rumble is born. Vince McMahon puts that on free TV against Crockett's product, and it had to hurt Crockett. Now, with an assist from Ted Turner and WTBS, Jim Crockett and the NWA are getting a little bit even with Vince McMahon. They put a free show up against WrestleMania IV. And I know WrestleMania IV made a lot of money both on pay-per-view and from the the live event revenue, but this one had to hurt. Sean,
2: what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean the problem here with these guys right now is that their wrestlers were outstanding. We've done a bunch of shows in this era, and every show is the same thing. The wrestlers are great. They usually work hard. Sometimes it gets so discouraged they don't. But the guys who are booking, the guys who are, everyone doing the production, everyone else is getting in their way. It's maddening. I mean, you just see, this is a perfect card. We're going to do Clash 1, we're going to talk about today, and four out of the five matches that are shown are outstanding. One is crap, and it's just stupid, but the every problem with this show is outside the ring, and that is typical for everything they do.
0: I, I kind of agree with you. John, give me your thoughts in to the first Clash of the Champions.
1: You, you touched on it, right? It was, it was a great show. The thing that always stood out to me with WCW in this era was, the production values and then some of the booking choices, decisions that would make you scratch your head. And, and that's what it came down to you. Like you said, you had these great, great matches four out of the five, but then you had all these other things where you go, mm, I don't know about that. Or, I don't know about this, or it kind of doesn't look good here Underbooking, I don't know how you want to call it, but one of those, hey, let, me you, let me give you an example. It should be common sense.
2: Why are you booking a barbed wire match? on a live cable TV show, you know, nobody's going to get busted open or else, you know, why are they doing that? Now the match ends up even worse than it was going to be. Well, again, we'll get to that in a minute, but that's an example of them getting in the way.
0: Yeah. I mean, Dusty, you know, the mood coming into this show was that, I mean, a lot of fans, both, you know, quote unquote, smart fans and non-smart fans were just getting tired of the same old stuff in the NWA. I mean, you know, if you went back and read the reader's pages from the Observer, I mean, the hate is pouring off the paper. The level of hatred for Dusty
2: Rhodes is just pouring off the paper. The booking is inexplicable at this point. I mean, it's, they, they, and that's the worst part is they had the guys. They, you know, they had
0: the guys, but a lot of the guys were getting stale. And I mean, just going down this card, you've got Garvin Rotundo, uh, Mike's been there two years, Garvin's been there since 86, Midnight's been there since 85, Fantastics just got there, let me see, the six-man, Dust, they'd all been there since the beginning in the 6 band, and we're talking like, eight, You know, once again, the beginning was 85, uh, Luger was new and hot, Sting was, Luger had been there for, two, for a year and he was hot, Sting had kind of
2: been there for about a year, but he was just starting to get pushed, you know, it's the same old guys being recycled. Probably, yeah, well, it's not only the same old guys being recycled, the same old guys doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, how long did poor Mike have to do the varsity club? I love the varsity club. But still, I mean, they and he was good. They can't think of anything else for him. They'll come up with one idea that works, and they'll saddle it with it for the guy forever. That's why these guys get stale, because it's the same ideas over and over and over. Dusty had a go. I mean, and I like Dusty. As a booker, say, 85 was fantastic. But, I mean, he's just—it happens to every bookie. You run out of the gas.
0: Yep. and. Not only was Dusty out of gas creatively, I think after a while, it's like you have that same booker with the same guys, and they're all getting sick of each other, quite frankly. the morale
2: syndrome. Yeah, I mean... you'll like know, coach, Mike Keenan, everyone got sick of listening to him after like three years. He'd be great for three years, but after that, forget about it.
0: Yeah, Billy Martin was the same way. I mean, you yep. just can't get, you know... And, and here's the thing. Coming in... Jim Crockett, this ship was taking water, man. And it wasn't just Starcade, it wasn't just one thing. Jim Crockett had to see that his audience was declining. The buildings that were once drawing eight, nine, ten thousand fans were drawing three, four, five
2: thousand fans. Yeah, it was gonna get worse. And this show is March twenty seventh, nineteen eighty eight, six thousand people in Greensboro. Yeah. Back in the day, that's unacceptable.
0: Part of the reason, though, is, I mean, there's two ways to look at this. It's going to be live on television anyway, so why spend the money? But then again, people go to, you know, sell out the Red Sox 81 times a year, and those games are on TV.
2: I know, that's your home base, so that looks bad. Drew a rating of 5.6. Start off with Bob Caudill, which is a big tease, because I think I'm going to get Bob Caudill for the entire card. No. I got Bob doing these stupid interviews. In his defense, Tony did the uh, card and Jim Ross. So we're both very good. Tony was particularly good.
0: I thought they both, Ross and Bonnie, were at their
2: best on on that after. Yeah, uh, everybody was great here. But again, that's a big tease, sitting there with Bob there. Then all of a sudden, you bury him the whole show. So first match is, and again, I like this match. It was Mike Rotunda with uh, Kevin Sullivan, and he beat Jimmy Garvin with Precious. Mike is the TV champion, and they did rules here. It was supposed to be three rounds and five minutes per. It was supposed to be college rules, but there's really no rule changing, except there's a one count on the pin. And so basically, you know, this match is going to be six minutes long.
0: Yeah, and I thought there was absolutely no need for that stipulation. I think it just made things too complicated. One thing, this is Mike Rotunda. He had just turned heel and started that new gimmick uh, with the varsity club. Like two
2: months earlier, so this is brand spanking new at this point. He was great in this role. I, 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 every time I see him here, I I think why couldn't he have been a heel all along? He's like the guy in the um. I have made this reference before, but he's like the guy in Revenge of the Nerds. The, oh yeah, yeah, uh, you know, of the football. He's perfect, the perfect jock. What do you What do you think of Mike? I I always feel like John that I'm like holding up the banner for Mike Rotundo and everyone else you know, tells me the guy's okay or you know nothing. What do you think
1: of Mike? Yeah, John, let's hear from you. I, I liked Rotunda. Now he wasn't one of those necessarily flashy guys, but he was, he was skilled. He always seemed to have decent matches and he played his role. I love the varsity club gimmick. The only thing, and this was watching this back today, you got a varsity club gimmick. You got these guys in varsity jackets and are let out by a guy in a satanic robe. Yeah, yeah, that always stood out. <laughs> <laughs> i had forgotten about it, kind of glossed over it through time, but I watched it again, and I just, I just kind of laughed at you've got the Games Master leading out some jocks.
0: No, I was all over Kevin's devil robe at the time. Just, you know, I don't know why he didn't... I'm not saying get a varsity jacket for Kevin, but like dress him up like Bill
2: Parcells or something. <laughs> I'm thinking he was going for the skull and bones kind of thing. From Yale, you know, the old, you know, secret society kind of deal. I don't know. I I agree. It didn't really work, but I think that's what the attempt was. Plus, you know how he just can't help himself.
0: You know, Sean, you mentioned that uh, you feel like you're flying the flag for Mike Rotundo. I mean, I always liked Mike Rotundo to the point where when he showed up in the NWA spring of 1987, I was very happy. And I was like, hey, you know, this guy's good. They absolutely should push him. Maybe even as a fresh opponent for Flair, maybe even, this might be a little of a reach, but as United States champion, I liked him that much. I remember the day he's out doing his interview, and he's standing next to Tim Horner. I'm like, well, there goes all of that. They have no plans for this guy. And it it tells you a lot about how you place these guys. If you send someone out there, if you send Mike Rotunda out there with Dusty Rhodes, he would have looked like a star. Instead, they sent him out there with Tim Horner, and he looked like crap.
2: And in this match, I, he, he adds a, an air of credibility to the matches. I love the way he calls matches as a heel. They're always kind of these slow, methodical, everything all moves mean something. All moves lead, lead to the next thing. There's logic to it. It doesn't go very fast, but it makes sense. And it yeah. allows that suspension of disbelief. That's why And he, Jimmy Garvin's just, uh, he's gold here. I mean, this is a really good match. What's up with uh, Precious? Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll say
0: this. I think I've mentioned this on the program before. Usually, if you see a woman who's on TV in real life, she looks a lot better on TV. Precious was the opposite. She was absolutely gorgeous. And for whatever reason, it just she didn't come across as gorgeous as she was on TV.
2: Oh, oh I didn't mean that. I mean, her meltdown, that the oh, great yeah. booking they did with her, where she, you know, she decks Rick Steiner at the end of the match with a two by four. And then she chokes out Kevin with a a coat hanger. Yeah. He dropped. Let me share this. We were watching WrestleMania four
0: live and upstairs we were videotaping the clash of the champions. I mentioned this. I thought WrestleMania four was boring. Everyone in my house thought WrestleMania four was boring. But as soon as precious start went wild with the two by four and the coat hanger, everyone came to life. It was like, you know, this is fantastic. We no longer have to be bored by WrestleMania 4. It, it just got a huge pop in my house.
2: Nice. The crowd was hot, too. Absolutely.
0: Wild. I mean, just a, an insane hot crowd. And that's something I miss. I don't know if I've seen a crowd like that since. That kind of
2: a crowd. Well, it, it's probably in Greensboro. They just stopped running shows all the time in Greensboro. That crowd was always crazy. You guys got anything else on this match? Uh, how about John,
1: are you all set? Yeah, I'm good. The only, the only thing I wondered about when I saw that, you know, because the crowd jumped out at me as well as I thought, you know what? I wonder if, and we'll talk about the Midnight express shortly, if that maybe should have been what opened the show. You know what? That was the hottest at the point at the start. Yeah, that. that Something uh, to think about when we get there. No,
0: you know what? You're right. I mean, you always want to have not maybe your best match, but a really hot match in, in your opener if you're having a TV special
2: Mm, like this. But there's a problem with the midnight match, and we'll get into this a little while. Might as well get into it now, because it's next.
0: Dr. Death Steve Williams, after the Garvin and Rotundo match, makes a surprise return to WCW, or the NWA, excuse me, and does what is in it. might not have been the worst interview of all time, but it's in the team picture.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, it was one of his best (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, it probably still is the one. Oh, that was awful. I mean, it just. Why? Stop trying to make him talk into the little microphone thingy, okay? Yeah. Just give him a manager. Where's Gary Hart? Give him Gary Hart. Give him Cornette. Why are you using Big Bubba? Use him over there. And then you can you make your own little uh, Midnight Express kind of uh, four
1: yeah. horseman thing. You, you wanted him in the role like Heyman has with Blessner.
0: Yes. Yeah. And. I mean, Doc, you know, I, at this point, I mean, I remember watching the interview live and just being like, oh, my God, you know, he he can't talk. John, you, Well, will back to something we talked about a little bit last week. You've prepped wrestlers to
1: do interviews, right? Somewhat. I never had the TV, but we did have some, you know, you got on a mic and cut one out in the uh, audience, you know. OK, now I would tell guys, OK, look,
0: in your own words, I need you to talk about A, I need you to talk about B, and I need you to talk about C. And it was almost like no one even gave Doc that unless, although I can tell you, I've told guys, say A, B, and C, and they've gone completely off the track, so it happens. But it looks like he was completely unprepared.
1: Just go out there and talk, Doc. Yeah. Maybe they said to him, say something about Ric Flair or say something <laughs> exactly. to, you know about the heavyweight title. Oh, no. I thought he was reading cue cards badly,
2: but I thought oh, he hopefully. was like, because it, it looked like there was something he was trying to do. And then at the end, it was like, "Bye bye." I think he said, "Take a dare." I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure what that meant. but I mean, I had to rewind it like three times. I had no idea what the guy was saying. It was awful. I was kind of hoping you'd like pretend that didn't happen, but it did happen, and it was it was painful. The reason to the to the express, the reason why I wouldn't have that match first, it was almost too crazy. I mean, that's almost you almost that's almost too hot to start off what? with. I remember I heard a story about an old uh, Capital card. Back in like the early sixties or something like that, and midway through the card, they had Eddie Graham and Bearcat Wright. and I guess they just beat the holy hell out of each other so badly that the crowd just went up as a riot. There were three matches afterwards, but it didn't matter. Everyone was sitting on their hands with the cops all over the place afterwards. <laughs> now, granted, I wasn't expecting something this severe, but I was thinking the opposite. Like, wow, that's a crazy match to have it too.
0: Well, you know what? I mean, it was, it was such a stacked card. But one last thing about Doc, I mean. Look, it's like everyone has said that he should have been a heel. If you can't talk and you're a great big guy, you need to be a heel. And put Steve Williams with Jim Cornette, and you would have had a license to print money. You would have had a main event heel. And you can't have too many of those. And like I said, you know, you no longer the boss is no longer someone who wants a lineman from Oklahoma to be his world's heavyweight champion as a babyface. That's gone. Doc should have been a heel. Yeah,
1: I would agree.
2: And it's not even necessarily having a main main event. You want guys in the pipeline. You know, that you can bring up real fast in case, God forbid, something happens. Or, you know, just the next guy up. Yeah. He was only getting so far as a babyface as we saw. ECW stole this entire match and did it worse. Midnight Express match. I was sitting there counting the spots that ECW would do to death that they were doing, except doing them all better. The one thing that jumped out at me was at one point they did the double goozle and I hadn't seen a double goozle in years, but that is way more. Okay. If you've never seen the double goozle before, it's basically Eaton will do a shoulder tackle and Stan goes underneath with clipping the legs. It's kind of like total elimination, except they do it in like full motion, a whip into the ropes. And then they clip the guy coming off the ropes. That move, even something like that, everything in this match was perfect. There was no, they threw a perfect game. Everything was done well. Jim Cornette, I remember him saying
0: somewhere that before the match, you know, of course, the Midnights and the Fantastics, ideally you want them to go 20, 25 minutes. 32 years ago today, I saw the Midnights and Fantastics in Boston, and they had one of the best matches I've ever seen live, like four and a half stars. And, you know, they went 20, 25 minutes. They had a great match on worldwide that took up the whole show. And before this show started, they told them, OK, we can only give you 10 minutes, which is understandable if the main event's going 45. And the five of them got together and they said, all right, this is going to be the best goddamn 10 minutes ever. And it very well may have. I mean, this match it, was yeah, going 100 yeah.
2: miles an hour from the start. Was Rogers legit hurt at the end? Yes, because there was I was going to say there was about a two minute stretch there where he was getting the Mick Foley treatment from Hell in a Cell uh, as, you know, Undertaker's walking him around. He was I remember Stan basically did a leg clip for him at one point. He you know, basically put him into the move for a, some kind of a double team. He did it for him, kind of.
0: Yeah, Bobby, they did in a, a spot where I think it was Eaton bulldogged him outside the ring on a table that was lying flat. And, like, the table jumped up somehow, and Rogers got clipped
2: under the eye, and he had to go to the hospital. Yeah, he had something to do with his mouth, too, because it looked like he had some teeth knocked out. But there was about two minutes where he, either he's the best actor in the world or his eyes weren't right.
1: No, he, his eyes weren't right. John, give me your thoughts on this match. The thing that killed me in this match was, you know, you had so much going on. Like you said, it was, like, the fastest ten minutes. I think Cornette threw a table at one point Yeah, when somebody was bouncing off the ropes, right? Yeah,
2: I, he held up the table, so when he
1: hit the ropes, the guy went head first into the table. Yeah, so you had Cornette hitting everybody with tennis rackets, throwing a table at one point, standing a table up to get hit. They're bulldogging. It was insanity. It was a so maybe You're right. Yeah, it was, was, it was awesome. Tournament. You could be right about starting it off. may have been a bad idea because there could have been a riot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and this, I mean, it's and you never saw this, but I see this in every match is bad. But this, once every couple of years, is fantastic. And coming in, they were
0: doing an angle where the Fantastics were literally driving Jim Cornette crazy. Like Jim was cracking under the pressure, and that's part of
2: his whole role in huh. this match. Didn't they keep beating them on TV? They had this thing where they, you know, the Fantastics kept beating uh, the Midnights and non-title matches over and over again on TV.
0: Uh, I know they beat him on worldwide in a non-title match. So oh, I think yeah.
2: there was a couple where they kept beating him, and that's what was getting Cornette. That's why they flipped out at the end. Rogers was fantastic here. I mean, how he finished the match, I don't know, but throughout the whole thing, he took some vicious bumps. He did. I mean, I thought Tommy Rogers was one of those guys where,
0: I mean, we talked about last week how you see a guy who's a talent, and you're like, all right, I got to do something with him. Tommy Rogers is a guy they should have figured something out. Like I know the Fantastics had their run. They left at the beginning of 89. I, I know they were kind of, I don't want to say showing the door, but they weren't invited to stay. And, you know, at that point, if I'm the WWF, I try to do something with Tommy Rogers, even if he's a little bit small.
2: Put him in a tag team with somebody. And just, you know, I, I keep saying stuff like, stuff like that with uh, Don Cronodal. You know, I, I can't imagine why you just can't have this guy as a tag team with upcoming talent for the rest of his career. No, just like Tony Gurria did.
0: Same here. I mean, you know, WWF, I mean, they didn't even want to use the Rock and Roll Express because the Express was small and Rogers was small like that. But you're right. He's, he's too good. He's a good-looking guy, too. I mean, I, I think they could have used him.
2: And especially as a tag team, the size doesn't really matter in a tag team because you can do so many other different things between the double-team moves, like the Rock and Roll Express always did.
0: Yeah, you know, I was watching the Fantastics on Mid-South Wrestling, and Bill Watts got them over. He was just like, you know, these guys they're small, but they're so fast that you you know you can't hit what you can't catch.
2: Right. I mean, you you don't take these guys and have them in the center of the ring slugging it out with Nikita and Ivan. No. I mean, you have to book them smart. And you could still have a, a small guy get over John. But I mean, how like you know what, what are some of the tricks along those lines where if you have a small guy, how do you hide that outside of the obvious? You know, you know,
1: make sure you put them in the small guys. Yeah, I mean that's that's the number one thing is is that you don't expose them to the guys that are going to make them look small unless you're going to have them beat the guy. Yeah. You have to protect guys. You have to put them in a situation where if, you know, obviously finding a a way to use them from a character basis or, or just, you know, a a different team, or even if you try to use the, the Fantastics someplace else, you have to protect them. You have to give them people they can have good matches with. And then, you know, obviously you have to do things like maybe give them the belts because you have to do something to show that they're important, that they're good. And then you just have to go with it from there and then hope you can do the right kind of angles. And, and the Midnight Express is a perfect foil for that. You know, you have that thing where you have Cornette on the outside. The Fantastics are going to come across as the better team, but Cornette's always a difference maker.
0: You know, now I've got the wheels turning on what to do with Tommy Rogers. One thing, tell me what you guys think of this. I was never crazy about the Fantastics gimmick. It started in that weird knockoff, promotion Ole Anderson was doing in 83 yeah. when he had Terry Taylor and Bobby Fulton as the fantastic ones who were just a complete ripoff of the fabulous ones. But then they toned it down a little bit. They brought in Rogers and Lynn lost Terry Taylor. Now they're the Fantastics. I was never crazy about that gimmick.
2: It worked in regards. That's why it, it was terrible. But it worked because the Midnight Express were so despicable. Yeah, so huh. you know they basically became a baby face automatically because the midnights were so good, and that worked with everybody outside of the dynamic dudes.
1: <laughs> well, the dynamic <laughs> dudes. As well. An
2: asterisk. Yeah, <laughs> was an asterisk. fair enough. Exactly, 154 game season, if you will. This also, and it kind of, I'm looking at the next match. It's this also works for larger guys because I have said on previous shows that I did not think it, the Bookers did uh, Dusty did his friends, the Road Warriors, any favors by putting him in with the Powers of Pain. Because you took away, John, you were saying this earlier when you were booking, you were saying you're looking for something they have special. Well, you're taking away what the Road Warriors have special by we're having not, them it, in that match.
0: Before that match, something else happened that was pretty big. And that was Gary get-
1: What's that? I, I think it's about the dusty finish in the midnight match.
0: Oh, yeah, that, you're right. We didn't, we didn't mention that. That finish should never have been used again by this point. Uh, you have turned off so many people with that finish. And you're right, John, that was the only bad thing about this match.
2: Oh, I don't mind it in this case, just because it, because it was so obvious. If you have watched 10 seconds of this product and you had any illusions that the Fantastics were walking out of the with the, it was an obvious DQ. It wasn't one of those kind of backflip of the guy over. He picked the ref up and heaved him over the top rope. At least it was obvious. It wasn't some fluky thing.
0: That finish absolutely should have been banned. We're not using no. it under any circumstances.
2: I don't mind. See, I don't mind and it because at been, this and they point, Rogers. Double disqualification. No, I don't mind it at all because Rogers has been the hell, hell beaten out of him so badly at this point that even the crowd was got mad about that last fake tag, and that's when he flipped out. Right. So, I mean, and actually, he, within context of the match, it made sense.
1: Yeah, and, and, but the thing is, I, in my opinion, I think he could have left it alone. In other mm-hmm. words, you know, if Fulton's had enough. And he decides, you know what, we're done here. We're going to now escalate. I'm just going to throw Pee Wee to the moon (laughs) and get DQ'd for it. Let the DQ stand. Don't Uh, do the that. of they win the belts. I just,
2: I I can't, I'm watching, I hadn't seen this in years, but I'm watching the ref go out and go, oh, here comes the dusty finish. They're going to pin him right here. And yeah, I mean, you've seen it so often at this point, you just kind of expect it. So it doesn't even bother me anymore. You became numb to it, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I'm, I'm That's not a good thing. to. Yeah. Oh, true. That is, uh, another sign that he was getting stale. The best thing I could say about the six-man tag match was something before. important
0: happened before that, though. Oh, oh, yes, your special thing. Yes. <laughs> Al Perez and Gary Hart oh. make their debut, and Al Perez now today gets a lot of heat for "quote unquote" being boring. He had a really good run in world-class in 1987 with Gary Hart as his manager. And I was excited for him to be here. I thought he was on the verge of becoming something special here. John, your thoughts on Al Perez on this day?
1: I almost had the feeling that he knew that the UWF thing was going to just fail. And they were going to, you know, he did look like he didn't care. And Gary Hart even looked kind of like, got to get this promo we're going to come out and get a pro one, Dusty. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I thought there could have been more to Al Perez, but then at the same time, they didn't seem to like have any energy behind it like the writing was on the wall, that this wasn't going to go anywhere.
0: Yeah, I personally thought, I remember seeing him for the first time in WCW, Gary Hart returns to what was Mid-Atlantic Wrestling for the first time in about five years, and I thought that they could have gone somewhere and it just kind of flopped.
2: Sean, any thoughts from you? You'll notice the parts of the show. I'm accidentally quote missing. Yeah. He had the fine run. If you put him in with the good guy, but he never showed me like, not, not, not showed me anything, but I mean, he ne- there was never any kind of personality as, as John said, there was, he always seemed uninterested or that kind of above it all or something like that. And that came across always, I mean, if you put him in with the Von Erics or you put him in with someone with the Von or something like that, they're going to be so over, they'll take him with them. But it just it, him on his own, whenever I've seen him kind of left to himself, there was something about that emotional involvement that you couldn't. It, it's like Lex on his worst day. He didn't have any swagger. Maybe that's or, it. Or too much. Or just like, yeah, he just felt like he was above the whole thing. And it just, it, I, I don't know. It just, if he doesn't care, why should I? Yeah. To me,
0: he was a little bit different. I think he was a lot different, actually, in the NWA than he was world-class. I mean, you're right. Maybe it was just the way he was positioned, but like, there was just something missing. I don't know. But on this day, I thought like the NWA just wheeled out their new potential superstar, and it didn't happen. So now we get to the six-man. You know what? The Road Warriors had been with the NWA for two years now, full-time. And they hadn't really had a set of opponents that looked like they could physically hang with them until the powers of pain were formed. And even then, it's, you know, okay, these are two really big guys, but one is the warlord who's been there since 86 and has done nothing. And the other one is the barbarian who's been there since 85 and is established
2: as a mid-carter. This feud's a disaster for the road warriors. I mean, if you're trying to get them out of you, fine. But the one thing, the, yeah, they had no one who matched up with them. That's what made them special, was that there was no one who matched up with them. That's why everyone got pumped up. Once, so if you put them in with these guys, the fans are going, wow, they're going to blow those guys away. You can't do that either, because then you'll kill the powers of pain. So now you're stuck, and they kind of booked themselves into a corner on this with the, you know, it's this. I think this feud really kind of exposed the road warriors for that one special thing, that one great intimidation by having them in there with
1: guys who were their size or bigger. Yeah, and, and guys who can't bump. like So the Powers of Pain weren't going to be able to really take the big moves. True. True,
0: there's no way they were getting, you know, no way, A, I think they were getting Warlord over their head
2: in the press. Number two, there's no way Warlord's doing it, even if he could. Yeah. Actually, this does kind of feel like with the Road Warriors, it's a redo. The Powers of Pain did the Road Warriors what the Road Warriors did to the, the Bruiser and the Crusher. <laughs> so many years earlier
0: you know one thing about this match first of all i mean look at the contrast between the wwf and the nwa there is no way even on a dare in 1988 that vince mcmahon does a barbed wire match on a live national tv show he's not doing it anywhere period but dusty rolls out what's supposed what's billed as a really violent match on this show and i'm surprised. Actually, I'm not surprised TBS allowed it because it was different back then.
2: And there was no blood! Dusty bled. Ivan bled. Ivan had a little cut in his forehead. I think yeah. Dusty was paint because Dusty walked into the ring with all kinds of paint all over his face. Yeah. It was, <laughs> was toned down, yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, why did what, they just don't want to afford the cage? Was there like an extra, yo, know, we just figured we'll take the barbed wire? And it was cheap, too. They just kind of wrapped it around real quick. It was like a scaffold match. and That's what barbed wire matches are. They just take away part of what everyone does, and everyone gets stuck doing a limited act, and they always look much better on the uh, advertisement than they end up being. Are there any good barbed wire matches? I would talk I just like the goofy Sabu ones, and I don't count those.
0: No, they're, and it's one of those things, though, where wrestling, it's almost like a cage match. It works better in your imagination than it does in the ring. When I first saw the idea of a barbed wire match. It was uh, Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes in Florida in 1982 inside wrestling. They had pictures of it. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to see one of these. And, you know, then you get to actually see it. It sucks.
1: They called it a Chicago street fight with barbed wire that they kept referring to Texas. So I don't exactly know what kind of match we had.
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh, Jim kind of went off on a flight of fancy in this one, this part of it. Uh, he said, this is like a Chicago street fight. So I think he meant that that's the usual type of match. And then he went off, he saw the barbed wire and he went off on this. I thought he was going to start singing Oklahoma. He's, you know, he's sitting there going back to the range and talking about how you know, the barbed wire locked all them, those, uh, you know, cows and all the other stuff. It, it, no, this is not where we're going with this match. But anyway, it thankfully it only lasted three minutes. By the way, it seemed that match seemed longer than the midnight match. And it was like half it, right? I hate the match, but it wasn't a good match. It was terrible. It took limited guys and made them more limited. You know,
0: one thing we need to touch on, too, like we were talking about them putting up the barbed wire, taking it down. We don't see this on a WWE network, but the first half of the show had so many commercials, and the commercials were so long. I remember that from watching it live, and, I mean, they had the time to do it, so it didn't interfere with anything.
2: Well, they were probably setting up the Flair thing.
0: That's exactly what they were doing. And that was one thing that was good about this show. I mean, they did Sting versus Flair live without any commercial interruptions.
2: Yeah, five matches was perfect. We've complained about this on multiple of these shows, that having 16 matches is stupid. It doesn't work. Even if it's the greatest talent in the world, it does not matter. The matches are going to be terrible because you're just not going to have enough time to develop them five matches each you know i could have used a little longer on a couple of them you know but fantastic all of them all of them
1: felt special and they didn't have to follow through on their threat remember they were threatening everybody with a shane douglas Larry Zabisco match <laughs> i know we've got this sixth match in our pocket we may spring on you at any time it's like keep the commercials going <laughs> okay
2: we I mean, just sit there walking around the ring while shane cuts a promo in the middle for a half an hour can't really <laughs>
0: So now, after the six-man, they bring another surprise on us. Nikita Koloff has returned to the NWA after about a two-month absence with a new look. He now has a crew cut instead of having his head shaved bald, and he's a little bit smaller. Uh a Nikita little. Yeah. <laughs> Nikita was going through a tough time. His fiance, uh was stricken with cancer, uh, which turned out to be terminal. At least he's back to work. And yes, John, he was a lot smaller, man. I mean, he was wearing a suit, and you could see it.
1: Yeah, and he, he was a little more toned down too in how he was acting. So it was an interesting shift in his character too.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I just remember seeing him that summer. He was wrestling, and there was nothing to him. I mean, he was—I want to say he was unpushable, but what he had that made him pushable—that you know, shaved head, that mean expression, the huge muscles—it was all gone.
2: Yeah, basically everything that he did well had disappeared at this point. And I found out that if you watch the promo and fast forward, it's just as entertaining if you actually heard him talk. Yeah, I I don't even see what the point is here. He walks in with the hair, which is a killer right there. And yes, he was on the 90s Hulk Hogan diet uh, here. And basically everything that jumped out about Nikita was gone. So he was left with his promo and pure wrestling ability, which wasn't going to get you very far.
0: You know, after 32 years, this just dawned on me. Maybe the problem with Al Perez not getting over is the fact that they feuded him with Nikita, and that's, like, all they did with him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think they were trying to use Perez to get over Nikita? You absolutely knew better that that wasn't going to happen.
0: And, you know, I mean, Gary Hart, I don't mean to rag on him too much, but he was Al Perez's manager in real life as well, and you know those two were tight, and sometimes that's just a conflict. It's a conflict of interest when you have someone
2: in that role. Yeah, but Nikita was—he was at this point—it was—it it was hard to watch. It, it really was. Like everything that made him special was just,
1: yeah.
2: So, are we seeing a trend with these interviews so far tonight? They're all morbidly depressing or just just bad. And next, so now we go back to the good. We have uh, Lex Luger, Barry Windham, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard—world class athletes—and Lex Luger all over the place right here.
0: Yeah, uh, and let's let's talk about what was going on in the promotion coming into this match. All anyone was talking about was who was going to be the next horseman—the guy who replaces Lex Luger. I mean, this was just you know a constant subject of conversation at this time. John, were you into the, like, the newsletters and all that by now?
1: Yes, I was just starting into it. I think in, let me think. Yeah, I was into it by that point. Maybe a year end by now with the newsletters.
0: Okay. Because I had a group of like six or seven people that I spoke to on the phone, and that was the subject matter every single time out. Who's it going to be? And we eventually learned that it was going to be Barry Wyndham. So we had this match. It was an excellent match. Like, I would say. Three and three-quarter stars, four stars right around there. It only went 10 minutes, but it was really good. And I was shocked when Luger and Wyndham won the tag team titles, because obviously Lex Luger is the number one babyface at this point, and you're giving him this title. I know it all worked out in the end, but I mean, John Muse, give me your thoughts when you saw the title switch.:
1: Well. I, I thought two things at the time. I didn't have really a thought one or the other. I was, you know, it made sense. It was good because also the other thing too, is that Flair had the heavyweight title. So you got Arn tell you what the tags getting a little mix was good. But I also thought after the show ended based on the Flair sting result, that they were trying to give something positive
0: on a show like this. You almost kind of have to have a title change.
1: Yeah. So in
0: a
2: major baby face going over.
0: Yeah. And when the titles switched hands, and I have to think that by now they knew they were going with Barry Wyndham. I, I think Wyndham turned like three weeks later. So I think they knew they were turning Wyndham. And with that in mind, this title switch totally makes sense.
1: Yeah.
2: Barry Wyndham is so good here. Barry Wyndham may be the best guy in the world right now. He's a total package. He's, you know, I know Lex has the name. Barry's a total package. He can move, he's athletic, he's big, he can play big, he can play smaller. Just, he's fantastic, he does good psychology. Him and Arn had a little piece of business in the center of the ring, just a pinning combination, yeah. fighting out of the pinning for a couple, of, it was compelling. It I was, mean, really just was. that. Just the little stuff they were doing right. He is just crazy. Everything he does is good here. Uh, yeah, I will go as far as saying, Barry's the best in the world right now. Uh, you and know, Arn and Tully were great. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Even Lex, I make fun of Lex. Lex is good here. Lex had improved a lot. He had only been in
0: the business at this point for two and a half years, I want to say, maybe three, and he got pushed from the start. It just takes a lot more seasoning than two years to fit in as a role as a horseman. He did fine as a horseman, he just wasn't good in the ring yet.
2: Well, I mean, he was the lesser person here, but there's no shame in that with the other three guys he was in there with. No. Uh, Because everyone was on. Again, everyone in the ring, outside of that last stupid match, everybody involved in every match was fantastic. I mean, this was a great in-ring night. It was. I mean, I look at it
0: this way. We just had, like, three really good matches. Uh, Two matches that were, like, four-star caliber, and now comes the main event, which was nineteen eighty eight match of the year.
2: Before we start, I agree with you. Match of the year, huge deal, world title. And just in case there's any problem, we have five judges at ringside. <laughs> and just to degrade our belt, even Don King wouldn't do this. Even Vince mcmahon wouldn't do this. Even Jack Pfeffer wouldn't do this. Pfeffer mate. John, who were the judges? It was actually three judges. Jason okay. Hervey That's
0: and better. The guy, the Leave it to Beaver guy, were just like at the celebrity table. The judges were Gary Juster, and I forget the other guy, but the... Sandy Scott.
2: Sandy Scott, Scott, thank you. Fine, no problem. Who's the third one?
0: The third one, her name was Patty Mullen, and she appeared in Penthouse Magazine (laughs) the year before. And I have this written down in front of me, just another glaring contrast between these two promotions Vince McMahon, uh, Vince McMahon would have been all over this in 1998, but 1988, like it's an idea he'd throw you out of the room for even suggesting.
2: And the worst part is, is that the judges messed it up, of course, because you know, you, you just know. And hervey's an idiot. You see him like look, looking around, like who are you voting for? <laughs> like, like they don't have the you know, the thing right in front of their hands. So they do the votes, and okay, if you want to have the penthouse pets, say draw then okay, fine, I can handle that. That she has to be the one who can't figure it out and has to pick draw. Sandy Scott, the one guy who should know better out of the whole thing. They have to hang him out to drive with, I'm here to be a judge to pick a winner and I can't figure that out.
0: Lou just posted Patty Mullen, Pet of the Year and Star of Frankenhooker. So there you go. Stop <laughs> calling her Pet of the Year. Let's disassociate her from
1: that. She's the Star of Frankenhooker who by it's the WCW. way... C W. Was that after? Because I mean, WCW should have promoted that. Ah, <laughs> it who can was after? Who can
2: possibly take their belt seriously with it? And you know, as you just said, they just killed themselves because they have a great match coming up. It's going to be your typical flare match with a guy who can go, except they have a little piece of story at the end that just puts it that much over. And of course, they take away the credibility by not taking their own belt seriously.
0: I, you know what? I didn't think coming in at least the judges thing hurt the, the the match, but it did hurt a little bit. Uh, the day before on WTBS on the 605 show, she and Ric Flair were hanging all over each other. I mean, she she did
2: not look comfortable doing it, but they shot the angle. <laughs> Good times had by all. Now, uh, the way they did the, this match and the story they told I thought was so great. It reminded me of a match that Bach, Winkle, and Lawler had a few years earlier where and, and this is like the 5 millionth time they've done this match. But what they did this time was they got to close to the draw, and they had Nick take over, and Jerry just started getting a beating. And the whole match switched from will Jerry win to can Jerry make it to the hour? So the whole goal of the match switched so the fans could get behind that, knowing that Jerry was going to win the belt again. And it worked. I loved what they did here where because it worked right into the characters where they basically had Sting as the rookie. They had him beaten up the old vet, but he just didn't have enough to put him away. He didn't know how to close the deal.
0: Yeah, and you know what? Coming into this match, well, let's go back with Sting a little bit. 1987, he's not doing very much at all with the NWA. Uh, he's there, just one of the stepchildren that left over from the UWF deal. Vince McMahon was interested in bringing him in, which made me say, wait a minute, maybe this guy has something if McMahon's that hot for him. But this apparently woke the NWA up because they gave Sting the opening match on Starcade 87. Granted, it was buried in, he he was part of a six-man as the opener, but at least they got him in there. A lot of guys didn't get a Starcade paycheck. Right after that, they turned Lex Luger, like within a couple of weeks after Starrcade 87, Luger was the big babyface star, and they started going around the horn with Flair versus Sting, and Sting's role, we're talking January, February of 87, was to give Rick Flair something to do while they worked on the Luger storyline. The promotion starts to see something in Sting and now we have this match. But right now, Sting is not a star yet. 45 minutes away from the time the bell rang to start this match,
2: Sting was a star. Did Rick think he was the man going into this match and he was going to make him the man?
0: Uh, Knowing Ric Flair, Rick thought he could do anything, he could elevate anyone, so I'm sure he came in thinking that. John, what are your thoughts?
1: Oh, I would agree. You know, Flair at this point, Near his peak, I mean, if you want to say his peak was probably the Steamboat funk in 89 window. Yeah, Flair probably went into this thinking, all right, I've got to make this guy a star. And he did this almost to anybody anyway, make them look good. But he went yeah. in probably thinking, I'm going to make this guy look like a million bucks. And, and Flair might have been thinking, too, you know, the promotion kind of depends on it at this point. Because, you know, what do they have behind Sting at this point? Here's one thing I was thinking about.
0: I mean, obviously Luger, they were holding Luger out at this point the plan was either to do, oh, I didn't even talk about this, they were going to do either the Midnight Rider versus Ric Flair at the Great American Bash, or, yeah, or Lex Luger versus Flair at the Bash. I didn't touch upon this. The day before on TBS, they did the angle where Tully Blanchard tried to beat up Magnum T.A. Dusty Rhodes comes out with a baseball bat, and, no, no, Magnum had the bat, and Dusty just picked it up, and he, quote-unquote, accidentally hit Jim Crockett, so now we're the day after that, and I noticed Tully wasn't getting very much heat. Like It was like no one cared. Okay, he hit Magnum yeah. TA, on, onward and upward, but do you guys think, and I'll let John, you're the guest, so I'll ask you first, do you think they should have done Flair Luger on this afternoon?
1: No, not where they were going with like when I'm going with the Horseman, right? I think they made the right choice with Sting.
0: Okay. Sean, how about you? I mean, I personally thought Luger Luger would have been like a pay-per-view caliber challenger, and you're out there trying to disrupt WrestleMania. I, I mean, I would have at least thought about it. Sean, how about you?
2: No, too early. And it's still, you, you want to disrupt, but you want to disrupt your cash flow, too. You don't want to kill your own pay-per-view just out of spite to somebody else. No, this was a good match, and this was somebody that probably asked Flair, like, well, can you get something out of this guy? Can you? Can you work with him? Or could they have asked Flair ahead of time? They go, who can you get a great match out of? And we need a big one out of you. Who can you get one out of that's not like Luger? Because we can't go there yet. And then he goes, give me Sting.
0: I mean, maybe. I mean, they they did not yet have the pay-per-view form. Their next pay-per-view was coming up in July. I, I remember being a little bit worried on their part that, okay, Luger turns beginning of January, end of December. It was end of December. And now you're putting this match on hold for six, seven months. I wasn't crazy about the idea.
2: Uh, again, maybe the promotion, it wasn't just Rick. I always thought, because you know, this is a Rick thing, because Rick always kind of was one of his early champions. But And the way they did the storyline, that's what got me, is that they almost made it to the point it fit him perfectly. Even if he made mistakes, it made sense. Because the whole idea was that he had all the athletic talent in the world, but he did not have... The skill to finish it off. He did not have the experience that Flair did, which is again, it allows him to make mistakes in the match, which he didn't. But it allows that, so that kind of gives him a little freedom to work and not feel as much pressure, and it sets the stage for what's coming up. Because you're like, wow, 45, and he's not ready yet. he is. Yeah,
0: I, you know, and I mentioned the question, you know, should they have gone with Luger? Hindsight being 2020, no, they went with the right guy. I mean, they came out of this show my take on it was okay they are now stacked in the babyface department they've got a fading dusty Rhodes as what looks like the number four babyface in the promotion now lex luger's clearly their number one barry windham is their number three and this sting guy just became their number two you know really with enough talent where he could be number one soon and he would be number one soon and i was just stunned that this kid went out and stole Brian Bosworth's haircut and look, put on a little face paint, and now he is overnight a major star in wrestling.
2: But also look at this card. It's a good spot to do that in, because if you put Luger here, you're losing at least one pay-per-view main event. By putting Sting here, you're gaining at least one, because you get the Luger match. You're potentially gaining two, because if you can get Sting over, especially in the way they did, that's setting up a second match coming up. And this card is so loaded from the bottom That you're covered. You know, you have Rick on top. You can put him in with, you kind of experiment a little bit because you have two great tag team matches sitting right underneath it.
0: I mean, the other side of it is that we didn't know coming in, no one knew really, that at the end of this card, Sting was going to be, you know, your hot new babyface superstar.
1: They might not have expected that either, but, you know, it could have been the 45-minute match was the plan all along. And Luger, concerns about him going 45, could have been there too.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, one thing they could have done is just have Lex Luger win the title on this event and drop a ton of hints that he's going to win the title. And they, I mean, they drew a really good rating. I think it was four and a half million people saw this match and, you know, it all worked out. Let's talk about how this event changed wrestling history. This one event that took place on March 29th, when... WTBS saw this, and they saw the rating that it drew. It drew that rating competing against WrestleMania, for God's sake, and it made Ted Turner interested in having this thing on regularly, number one, but number two, he now has something he can put on TV that's going to draw a big rating. Now when Crockett is going under, and there were already rumors in March 88 that Turner could wind up buying either the whole company or a piece of the company, and this event made him interested.
1: Weren't there uh, concerns about balloon payments coming due and things like that, or or was was that already ongoing?
0: That was already ongoing. They had materially breached all of the contracts for their talent. Jim Crockett was counting on Starcade '87 being a big event. You know, something that would net him. I think they were projecting between two and three million dollars. And that's how, what he was going to use to pay off all those balloon payments. And guess what? No $2, 3000000 million for you.
1: Hey, well, but it did show you Turner, think... right? It showed Turner they could draw ratings.
0: Exactly. And that was just you know a major event that changed the wrestling business because Crockett was going to run out of money by the end of the year. And guess what? We could have tuned in at 6.05 on a Saturday, and uh,
2: boom, there's an old Western on. Do you think Sting was getting over with or without this match eventually? No, I don't. I think Sting kind
0: of got over by accident, but you know he took advantage of this opportunity and it worked. But there was never a plan like, oh, yeah, we're going to take. Sting never got what Luger got. They always picked Luger from day one when he was in Florida. Hey, you're going to come in here. You're going to work a year, year and a half as a heel. They turned him earlier than they anticipated and we're going to make you the next Hulk Hogan. They never did that for Sting, or at least Crockett never did.
1: Yeah, what What if they had put Sting over? What would that have done? Imagine that scenario. Uh, you know what? I was thinking about that.
0: It would have thrown a major curveball into their pay-per-view plans with Luger. If they had known that they could get Sting over like this, I bet they would have at least held off on the Luger turn, because now you're looking at Luger versus Sting at the
2: bash. Before this match, what was their upside? What was their, like, okay, this is our projection for Sting before this match in, say, a couple of years? Where did they see him topping out?
0: I don't know. I think the way the NWA always worked out, you had Dusty and you had Dusty's sidekick, which had been the key to right now. He didn't have a sidekick. but And then you had a bunch of guys tied for, like, that number three baby's face spot. You had, you know, Ronnie Garvin, Manny Fernandez, et cetera, kind of all getting that same low-level push. I think that's what they saw Sting as, until this match happened.
1: Crazy. (laughs) uh, Yeah, when you look back to this one point in time where things could have went one way or the other.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, so we changed... Was it always going to be a draw, or was that a, you know...
0: They planned on it being a draw. I mean, and we all knew coming in that, I mean, the way they had set up the television, like the, the match started, Fifty minutes or whatever it was before they had to go off the air. But yeah, it was a great match. And Sting, despite not having a lot of experience, showed a lot of athleticism in that match. But most importantly, he showed a lot of fire and a lot of charisma.
2: Leading up to this, when were they starting to kind of take notice? Did they already? Was he one of the guys when they um when the the merger happened? They're like, yeah, we want him. Or it was when did he start to? Because I remember he was just one of the with the Ultimate Warrior just part of the tag team that uh, the Blade Runners when did yeah. what match happened in uh, along the lines that made someone think is maybe a single guy even to that to Ronnie Garvin level
0: I you know what I can't tell you but I do know that coming into 1988 I mean Sting like I said he was just a guy who was going to keep uh Ric Flair busy while they worked on the Lex Luger feud and that was going to be their it actually was their big money feud but Anyway, this has been another really good hour. It always goes by so fast. John, thank you for coming on. Like I said last week, I, I mean, ever since this show, I, I started to put together the idea of it. Like I was like, wow, I want to have John Muse on. And now I've done it two weeks in a row, and I'm happy.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I had a great time.
0: Sean, thank you for being the convivial co-host that you are. And I want to thank our producer, Luke Kippelman, for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.